This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. And yesterday was the 11th day of the 11th month and 100 years since the armistice um, when fighting ceased in World War One. And after years of expensive commemorations for that war, it feels like a really good time to have journalist and essayist Paul Daly speak with us about patriotism and what it means these days when Anzac is so mythologised. Paul's reported from many conflict zones and spent a lot of time with returned services personnel and also descendants of the front frontier conflicts in this country and his essay on patriotism has just been released and welcome back to triple r paul it's great to have you oh it's great to be speaking to you again thank you and we heard overnight the president of france calling out nationalism and instead for patriotism and it seems like a really powerful speech but can you imagine an australian pm going there and us as a population having a clear idea what they might mean by patriotism Uh, no i really can't i mean you know the in terms of sort of where my head's been at, you know, President Macron's timing was amazing, actually, um, because it's sort of what I've been thinking about while writing the essay. But, but one thing he said really struck me, and, and that was that patriotism is exactly the opposite of nationalism. And um, I, I sort of thought about that again this morning, and it, and it really resonated with me because really I think um, patriotism the way one sort of expresses or even um, even thinks of, you know, uh, one's connection to or love of country is a, is a very personal thing. Um, and, you know, it's something I've been looking at. It's really an introspection, a reflection, uh, and not necessarily, you know, an aggressive, overt display of national self-interest or, or exclusion, which is what I think Macron was, was referencing there. And obviously there were, there were sort of geopolitical implications to, to what he was saying vis-a-vis his, his relationship with Trump and his um, and his take on um, American nationalism at the moment. But, but yeah, for me, it's, it's a personal thing, and that's what I was really wanting to explore in this essay. What is it that I love about Australia, and how do I connect with the heart of this, this country in a in a landscape sense, but also, I suppose, in, in uh, a nation-state sense. And you write a lot about Anzac in this particular book, and, and you're, of course, very well acquainted with Australia's military history and have, have written books about that in the past. And you write that, I guess, in um, your earlier lifetime as a younger person, that Anzac was, you know, quite a solemn reflection. It didn't result in um, thousands of people on the streets waving, waving, flag, uh, waving flags and so on, but was something where there was an impulse to reflect on the horrors of war rather than being a great statement about, um, you know, the, the worst and, and um, a statement of pride, I guess, in the nation of Australia and an identity that kind of is being built up around that. Yet that has very much changed in recent years, in past decades in particular. How can we account for that shift in what Anzac means to us? Us as a nation? Well, I suppose I'd just say never, you know, for the last 30, 30 years, you'd never stand between most um, most federal politicians and um, an Anzac commemoration. I mean, it's it's really, I think we've got to look to, to the politicians who've uh, co-opted Anzac in a way for, you know, uh, the, the end of, of nationalism. And, and the other thing, too, is that it's been co-opted really as 
I suppose some sort of explainer for national definition for you know national birthing, the birth of the nation. I mean, how often have we heard that uh, Australia was um, we came into being at um, at ANZAC, meaning ANZAC Cove, in, in April. 1915 and, and for me that is just absolutely illogical given that you know we have 60,000 years of um, indigenous civilization proud indigenous civilization um, on on this continent that survived the invasion which is the real began the real wars to me that that from which the, the you know the land grab and the federation grew um, so yeah it's, it's almost like to me our politicians for the last 20 or 30 years have been sort of emphasising ANZAC as a way to distract from what I consider to be the real story of um, national definition in, in this country. And I suppose that brings us, you know, to the war memorial and frontier conflicts. And there has been calls by many people over many years now that we should be recognising those conflicts in and alongside the other ones that we memorialise there. But, you know, even though that, 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 that place has been given a big whack of cash in recent years, can you imagine that shifting and changing? Well, I, I think the War Memorial, the Australian War Memorial, is on the wrong side of history. Um, I think that for it to remain relevant now that uh, Anzac 100, as it's been called, um, is over, it's going to have to um, broaden its, its remit to take into consideration and to reflect um, a number of other stories, not least of which is the frontier wars that, um, you know, were all across this continent and involved locally raised militias and were by any modern or previous definition wars. Um, there are other things that the War Memorial doesn't reflect. I wrote today about how uh, the Australian War Memorial does not reflect um, anything to do with the Armenian genocide, which was actually witnessed by Australian um, troops and prisoners of war of the Ottomans in World War One. And in fact, you know, it can be argued, and many do, and with with great reason, that the um, the aid given to uh, Armenians escaping the genocide in the Middle East in World War One by Australian servicemen was Australia's federated Australia's first um, uh, aid effort. Um, yet there's nothing in the War Memorial about that because um, the Turks, Turkey, doesn't um, it denies that it was genocide, and Australia, which has this great bond with Turkey over Gallipoli and the Anzac legend. Um, the Commonwealth of Australia doesn't recognise it as a genocide either. So, you know, there's all sorts of things that um, that um, the War Memorial and the Commonwealth of Australia doesn't do. But, you know, as you point out, the War Memorial's just got another 500 million bucks to expand so that it can tell more stories. I think it should tell more stories uh, that diverge from the only story that it currently tells. Yeah, it feels like it's it's very difficult for our leaders um, and perhaps Australians more broadly taking cues from our leaders to develop, uh, I guess, a more complex um, understanding of Australia's history that takes into account the frontier wars and, and you know, the horrors that were wrought on First Nations people um, in the aftermath of colonisation. And we see these debates very much flare up around 26th of January every year um, and still waiting to see kind of when and if we might 
might have a change of date, but also when people um, in the public eye question the kind of sanctity of Anzac, such as people like Yasmin Abdel-Megid and Scott McIntyre from SBS, who was fired for questioning the integrity of Australia's soldiers in Egypt, Palestine and Japan. So whenever anyone kind of goes against the accepted narrative, they seem to be struck down very quickly. Why does that happen now, do you think? Look, I don't think there's any doubt that ANZAC has been culturally weaponised like that. Um, And ANZAC has really become like a secular religion in Australia. Um, You know, it's sort of been sanctified and and it's surrounded with with the language of a religion, really. We talk about, you know, the fallen and the spirit of ANZAC and um, the glorious dead, which has a sort of a religious connotation. It also sort of denies the humanity of the guys who fought in World War One, the Anzacs, who were ordinary blokes, um, and they joined up for all sorts of reasons, and they were put in terrible positions, and, you know, the truth is that otherwise good men or ordinary men are capable of doing terrible things in war, just as ordinary men are capable of, you know, enormous courage too. So I just, I, I just think it has been, over the years, elevated into sort of a form of, um, form of belief and religion, and, you know... It's become sort of untouchable. Those, to to an extent, some people who who criticise um, Anzac really cop it. Um, I've been questioning it for years, and um, you know I've had my my share of criticisms. But uh, I think it's you know I, I I kind of feel a duty as a as a writer to um, to go to this place and to to rethink sort of what it is and to try and put Anzac into some sort of perspective um, in terms of, you know, a culture and a continental history, which is much, 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 much older than than 1915. You write in the book that Australia spends far more on uh, commemorations around World War I than other countries around the world. And I was thinking, uh, reading your book, uh, all about kind of the mythologising of Anzac, that it's easy to forget sometimes that, of course, New Zealand was part of that. Uh, And I was wondering whether the mythologising has happened to the same extent there. And from what I've read and and understand kind of um, basically about New Zealand society is that it hasn't been look to as kind of the defining point of a nation as it has been here in Australia? No, that's right. And it's interesting you raise those figures because the figures themselves are very, um, very telling. Australia has spent $600 million uh, on the Anzac centenary, which equates to about $9,000 for each uh, Australian soldier who was killed in the conflict. Um, New Zealand, on the other hand, has spent $31 million. Uh, which equates to about um, $1,700, still higher than Germany, $2 a soldier, and the UK, $109. But I think it's you're, you're quite right. Uh, New Zealand has other foundation narratives. It has the um, Treaty of Waitangi, and it, and it is culturally much more embracing of uh, Maori culture and, um, and, and history. And, you know, I think it's really interesting that, that we're having this discussion at a time that, Pretty much the federal government turned its back on the um, the statement from the heart out of Uluru last year, which was basically, we invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future and let Anzac and ancient sovereignty shine through as a fuller expression of Australian nationhood. I mean, that is the, that is the, the, uh, the offer, the very diplomatic offer from um, Indigenous Australia, which wants a truth-telling about the past and 
a voice to Parliament. Now, the response to that within 24 hours from the Deputy Prime Minister was effectively tell them, tell them, tell them they're dreaming, um, which was, as far as I'm concerned, a disgrace and a terribly lost opportunity. And that was Barnaby Joyce at that time and Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister and we have a, a new crew um, now since, since that happened. Uh, are you seeing any sense that there might be a, a, a re-look at that response to the Uluru Statement? No. Um, I, I think at the moment, um, you know, Scott Morrison is, um, is intent on spending $50 million in zone electorate on um, another monument to uh, James Cook. Um, now, there's a fair few Captain Cook monuments around Australia, not least in, in Sydney, but I don't think um, we're going to get any progress on... Um, on a positive or any sort of meaningful response to the um, Fuller Roof statement from the heart out of the Morrison government. Um, and that's his crew, isn't it, down there the Cronull- we're in Cronulla? That's where his electorate is, I understand. I'm not in Sydney, but um, it's interesting in your essay, and I said it's part, part memoir, uh, you, you do write about the first times that you saw people drape themselves in a flag, and one of them was Cathy Freeman, and I share that. She's the first person, I think, I remember draping herself in an Australian flag, but now it's relatively commonplace, and I wonder what you see that that's come to mean these days, Paul. So she she draped herself in two flags. One one was the Australian, and one one was her own um, Aboriginal flag. Um, I sort of started seeing this when I was living in London, actually, um, Australia Day in London, around about I don't know 2001, around about the first Gulf War, when there was a lot of talk about Australian involvement in, in military action in the Middle East. And then when I came home, I saw it at Cronulla where the names of the Anzacs were sort of also being invoked to exclude um, you know some people who they were you know they were they were fighting with on those those terrible couple of days um, so for me down there in Cronulla over that riot time you sort of got this weird and pretty toxic combination of, of the flag as an ex- exclusionary symbol and um, and the use of Anzac um, now it's sort of you know, people are perfectly entitled to drape themselves in the flag if they want to. I don't know that it's something Australians have a long history of doing, um, you know, flag worship and fetishism, but it, but it seems to sort of have become more prominent in, in recent years. And, yeah, you're right, round about um, Cronulla was, was the first time I sort of noticed it in a really toxic sense. Yeah, there's a real impetus in your book, Paul, to think about, I guess, new moments that could serve as kind of a, a coming together and a shift of the national narrative that might kind of get us out of this jingoistic um, kind of blind um, nationalism, patriotism, whatever you want to call it, um, kind of situation we've found ourselves in over the past few decades. And the Uluru Statement from the Heart certainly presents as, as one moment where that could have happened, but so far it absolutely hasn't. Um, a Republic is another one where potentially that offers an opportunity to really redefine what the nation is and and a more true kind of reconciling of the frontier wars and all the the horrors that have happened in Australia's history could happen through that process potentially. But given that we have such bipartisan agreement on on ANZAC and the sanctity of that and the kind of unquestioning uh, way that we cling to that kind of mythology, I wonder if it's likely that that could happen if, for example, the Republic could uh, demand and, and give rise to a more complex understanding of the nation's history and national identity while the Anzac myth continues to grow and, and kind of perpetuate? Look, I think 
I think we've reached peak Anzac, to, to be quite honest. I think, <laughs> I, I, think, I think people are going to start thinking about, you know, what else we might be now that, you know, that uh, the politicians are going to stop for a while talking talking so much about Anzac now that they've spent all the money on it now that we've had the armistice. But, listen, you're quite right about, about the Republic, but, you know, I would link the movement for a Republic to the sentiment that came out of, out of Uluru, which was quite obviously aimed at um, a future... Australian Republic, which was, you know, and there's, there's this invitation to walk with us um, in, in a movement for a better future. Um, but that Indigenous sovereignty and history shine through as a, a fuller expression of Australian Australia's nationhood. That's an invitation for republicanism to um, to reflect um, sixty thousand years of, of Indigenous cultural human antiquity. And I think that's absolutely cr- critical. I mean, from the point of view of many Indigenous people, I think um, they felt totally left behind by the move for the Republic you know, prior to the last vote 20 years ago. You know, for them, and for me, uh, as a non-Indigenous person, there is no point in having a Republic if, on the first day of Republican Australia, Indigenous Australians are waking up and nothing has changed for them. Um, that, that's my view about it. But so I see this as, a, as an opportunity. Yeah, and you've spent a lot of time on country and you write about that in this essay, Paul, and I, I um, yeah, was quite moved by some of the experiences that you shared with us as, as readers. And I wonder uh, how you see that, uh, I suppose, telling me about the response to the 1999 failed referendum was quite meaningful to me. It's a perspective that I really hadn't thought deeply enough about. And I wonder, do you think these are the conversations that we will now continue to have? Yeah, well, I really hope so. I mean, it's instructive that just yesterday, Labor, Federal Labor, under Bill Shorten, reiterated Labor's commitment to a plebiscite to gauge sentiment on, you know, a republic. Now, that's, you know, to to some ways of thinking, and I'm, you know, I may be included in that. Like, an inadequate first response, maybe you want to just say, okay, we're going to have a vote on it um, at at some point and let the campaign begin. But I do think uh, that around that plebiscite, and there will be, you know, campaigns from both sides on it, a yes and no, that, that it presents a real opportunity to look at where um, where the Republic will leave Indigenous Australians and how it might uh, fit in timing-wise with a, um, with a response to Uluru, a, um, uh, you know, the constitutional response, that is, the, um, uh, the referendum there that will have to take place if a um, voice to Parliament, however that might look, is enshrined in the constitution, um, and in terms of the order that they that those things happen, um, you know, I totally understand, and I'm more sympathetic to the view that uh, that the first thing that should be dealt with is, um, is the indigenous issue of truth telling and that voice to parliament, as was the message very loud and clear after national consultations with indigenous Australians out of the world. Well, with the armistice, as you say, um, yesterday, the uh, the, the um, commemorations took place around the world yesterday, 11th day of the 11th month. It's 100 years, and maybe let's hope the next 100 years we can have a different conversation. Um, Paul Daly, thanks so much for being on Triple R.
Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks a lot. And there's a whole series of events kicking off this Friday in and around the Westgate Bridge. Uh, the bridge projects are happening as part of the Art and Industry Festival, which runs for 10 days and includes theatre, visual arts, archival material, large-scale projections, talks and music. Vindy, Cole Chocker and James Henry are both part of it. Uh, the bridge is the play they've been collaborating on, which revisits the collapse of a giant span of Melbourne's Westgate Bridge in 1970 that claims the lives of 35 workers. And... Um, both former regulars on this show going back a few years now so it's great to have you both in together wow thank you i don't think that's ever happened before yeah no that's a treat (laughs) yeah this is this is also part of the whole bridge experience bringing us two together on the show yeah and the and the the plays of a bait and play it's by your late mother bindi vicky reynolds and it's been brought back into production maybe tell us about what that process has been like sure so the original play was commissioned by donna in 1990 she was working at footscray community arts center um and she had a theater company called foot and mouth theater and she commissioned my mum who was a writer in residence at melbourne workers theater at the time which was at jollymont railway yards to write this play because my mum was very interested and so was donna in telling authentic stories from the margins and from the working class and so they wrote the play and I was um, only 15 at the time and, and my mum was a full-time creative and she brought me into every creative project that she did and so she brought me into the play. So I went with her as she interviewed people. Um, I performed in the play as a little 15-year-old bridge worker <laughs> and um, I, I had an opportunity to go into the bridge too, into the steel girders underneath um, the main spans of the bridge as well. And, and so now Donna uh, contacted me... Actually, Donna and I have had a long relationship as well. We have known it, I've known her since I was 13, Donna Jackson, and, and she's now the director of the Art and Industry Festival, and she called me about potentially being an artist-in-residence, and one of the things that we talked about was remounting my mum's play, um, now 27 years later. And so we're doing it, and we've brought James on board, and he has composed all of the music for, this play, for the play this time around. And we've also massaged the script a little bit. Donna and I collaborated in adding a story to the script, which is about um, how back then um, bridge workers and the unionists would employ Aboriginal musicians to come and perform for the workers on the bridge at lunchtime. And so we've incorporated that story into this new version of the play too. That's fascinating. So, so tell us more about that. How would that process happen that Aboriginal musicians would play on the bridge? I mean, was that common for, for workers, construction workers, to have entertainment on their lunch break? Or I don't know if it was common for them to have entertainment, but I know that it was really uncommon for Aboriginal musicians mm. to be employed um, to perform at that time because this is, you know, in um, 1970 and... Donna and I started to research that story and we brought James on board and we ended up, Donna ended up contacting one of her friends who's an ex-unionist and bridge worker and said, look, we know about this story of these bridge workers employing Aboriginal musicians. And he goes, yes, Donna, that was me. And so we ended up going around to his house and he told us about how he'd um, had... You tell the story, James, about Bobby McLeod coming down. Yeah, so... Uh, Bobby McLeod is a uh, very well-known and respected, well-loved uh, Aboriginal uh, songwriter. A bit of a uh, one of the first of a long line of uh, protest songwriters, uh, you know, go- going along with the protest movement of the seventies and uh, into the eighties, and that. And 
Yeah, it, um, yeah, it was great to know that you know, he was also you know loved and respected outside of the Aboriginal community by the workers down here to uh, you know make the trip down to Melbourne and play a few songs. And he contacted one of the workers um, who said, and he said, "I'm coming to Melbourne." And so he got him this gig on the bridge playing. And at the end, they passed around a bucket and they collected six hundred dollars for him, which was a big amount of money in 1970 for someone performing at lunchtime. Yeah, yeah, and so when you say on the bridge, like it was under construction. Yeah. It, I don't think it was built then, was it? No, it was... Um, yeah, so I think it was uh, 1974. 1974. I, I oh, think, so, mm. Yeah, so uh, when... Yeah, so there was a collapse in 1970, and then well, it was finished in 78, yeah, according to uh, the internet. And... <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had to do a little bit of extra research. So that's like one year before I was Wikipedia born. Wikipedia is so helpful. <laughs> it's one year before I was born, and also I was born and raised in Sydney, so I've only been to Melbourne like the last uh, 12 years. So, yeah. I guess doing the play was a bit of an education for me and um, yeah and, and also like seeing in the play uh, it's in, in education for the younger generation of the you know the, the cast as well that uh, like during the play they get to realise how important you know this moment was. And through chatting with, with Bobby and I guess engaging with the play the original play and then the kind of re-adaptation or reimagining today how did you go about crafting music for that and composing music I mean did you kind of workshop stuff with, with Bobby or did you kind of like go into, into your room and just kind of come up with it based on your um, responses and, and emotional kind of attachment to the story yeah well I guess initially there was a, a bit of a um, experimentation with uh, certain ideas and then hearing about uh, you know the fact that they had um, you know Uncle Bobby playing there and I imagine they would have had uh, other people with uh, guitars and harmonicas and such uh, getting up there to perform I also find it a very uh, very real and very true and humble uh, 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 medium to be able to uh, put across emotion and so I thought um, yeah why not uh, you know if I was going to be uh, getting up there and playing a song as part of the play then why not you know play more music as part of the play and then uh, like we also have in the play workers uh that, that kind of come out as part of the local community to, to uh, represent you know, the, the workers on the stage as, as well as the actors so I guess we were incorporating all these different elements so I thought I know well why not um, you know play a lot of the music live uh, just as uh, that kind of um, with that sound of that uh, you know folky uh, you know protest guitar and harmonica yeah it's really exciting James performs the soundtrack to the entire play live as well as plays the part of um, the Aboriginal musician too Wow. Yeah, and so uh, other than and Donna Jackson and yourself, are there other members of the original cast that are again part of this one, Bindi? I don't think so. Um, we ha- the the original cast was mostly community a community cast, whereas this cast we have professional actors uh, with a chorus of a community um, cast performing as bridge workers. But uh, apart from Donna and I, no, I was invited to be in the play again, but. No, not this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you find your, your connection with, with the bridge and, and the collapse and so on uh, changed at all once you re-engaged with the play? Because, I mean, when you initially were part of it, you were you know quite a lot younger and obviously years passed since then. Did you have a similar response or were there things you learned and, and so on when you re-engaged with it? I think 
originally doing the play and working with my mum developed uh, an, a, a, such a profound love for the bridge if somebody can love inanimate things. I definitely love the Westgate Bridge um, because of what it represents in terms of the bridgeway, the gateway to the West, because of my mum's connection as a creative to it and my part in that. Um, and also because the following year my mum passed away and so those memories of working with her during that time have become so precious to me and every time I see the bridge or travel over the bridge or under the bridge or remount the play of the bridge it's, it's just something that's really deeply precious to me and like James said I'm so grateful to have this opportunity to remount this play and revisit these feelings and these emotions and um, <clears throat> and in some strange way generationally collaborate with my mum who's not here too so I already loved the bridge I, this would only deepen that even further and I'm so happy to be able to share the stories um, to a new generation as well and also in terms of OH&S um, Donna's really um, passionate about this the idea that the collapse of the bridge actually changed the face of OH&S in Australia um, prior to that things were much more relaxed and now a lot of people think we live in a nanny, a nanny state when it comes to OH&S but a lot of that came out of the bridge mm-hmm. because 35 workers lost their lives Yeah it's a fascinating um, story and I suppose for me I mean in recent years with the tragedy of the young child that died on the bridge where we've got those barriers now has changed the bridge for me yes. and I wonder if other people feel the same way that it was a bridge and it was the gateway before and now it's I always think of that when I cross that yeah. bridge it's changed it forever yeah I agree with you and you know you remember those days when there was no fence and you could drive over and you had that clear view of the city and now that big fence is there and that big fence is like that reminder isn't it of this fence is here because of these lives lost and I drive over the bridge all the time so I have to not think about that all the time otherwise I would be so traumatized particularly as a mother yeah you've got to push it you do you You do but also I think just as an aside I volunteer in the women's prison regularly and do a lot of work with the prisons and so I also see the flip side of people who commit crimes and have a have not only a sympathy for the victim but even the criminal but that's a complete Aside, but uh, yeah, the bridge means so many different things to so many people. Hundred percent. And we've been speaking mainly about the bridge projects, the play, but there's also other artworks that you've been involved in as part of this whole project, um, taking place as part of the um, Art and Industries Festival. Tell us about those. So I've had the opportunity, which um, is really um, amazing to me, to. Uh, do some full large-scale projections into the windows of the substation. And so uh, James and I originally collaborated on a video with Donna... um, which sparked this whole bridge projects thing. And so I've kind of put this video of um, some footage that I shot while travelling over the bridge and under the bridge. And it's quite abstract but quite beautiful, but that's going to be projected into the window. So that's a kind of a contemporary um, rendering of... The bridge creatively but then alongside that across the road there's a, a new gallery being launched called the outside gallery which is a series of 11 large light boxes and i'm um, both curating that and installing the first exhibition which complements the bridge and is part of the art and industry festival and i've created a brand new series of artworks that um talk about the legacy that my mum has left me as a creative Uh, and so I've 
I've kind of written a letter to her um, just saying how grateful I am that she showed me how to be a creative, how to mind my own life, how to tell authentic stories and how to also just practically live as a full-time creative. I watched her do that and I think besides um, money and material things, um, I actually think this is her biggest legacy to to me, modelling that for me and so I've created this whole new artwork that that honours that legacy and so you've got the bridge the the play then you've got the projections but this also tells that kind of history of the bridge as well and and that relationship with my mum and with Donna too yeah and I, it's a, probably the wrong end of the conversation to ask this but is this a new festival I wasn't aware of it before the art and industry and it's quite a I mean we hear art and sport and we hear all this sort of stuff but art and industry I imagine there is quite amazing crossovers and I, I'm one of these people that watches you know short films about the making of glass or the making of Ferrero Rocher chocolates like there is a lot of um, you know soundtrack that can go to industry as well it's not something I'd thought of before is it new or is it I think this is the second uh, one it's biennial and this is the second one Donna did the first one and of course as with everything that happens that's that's worthy and good it's kind of doubles down so I think it's twice as big as the last one and and you can actually go on tours and watch glass being made you can go and see these huge pumps you can see boats being built and so all of these types of um uh, manufacturing and particularly things that have been um, learnt over years and years are being treated as if they are artistic practice and you can go and see these things and then and then there's the symposium uh, which talks about all things bridges and art and industry and telling authentic stories in which James and Mark and the choir perform and then there's also these different nights and um, the light boxes that I've produced will be launched at a an event called a night in Newport which is Saturday the 19th Saturday the 19th or the 20th (laughs) (laughs) of um, this month and so the projections will be on the light boxes will be on um, the play will not be on it starts the following week but you you can start to get a feel for all of these artists that are um, working telling authentic stories working with industry telling industrial stories as well it's a whole festival full of amazing things and there's a great program that you can access online at the art and industry festival absolutely it's really easy to find yeah Yeah. and it's all taking place over the next kind of um i guess couple of weeks starting this weekend with the play on the 21st to the 24th of november um so all the dates and information on the art and industry festival website thank both of you thanks both of you so much for coming and telling us all about it sounds like a great series of events um and for playing that incredible song as well james yeah no thanks for having us yeah thank you in the lead up to the Victorian election which is just a couple of weeks away but also elections in New South Wales and federally the Grattan Institute's looked at the effectiveness of a whole bunch of public policy including the performance of our schools and Pete Goss is the school's education program director over at Grattan and he's here to share findings uh, of a a recent report into all sorts of things but also the state by state uh, research he's done on measuring student progress and it's great to have you back Pete it's been a little while and uh, I suppose you know what people are probably most interested in is how are we going how, how are victorian schools going yeah great to be uh, back Helena and dylan um victorian schools are going pretty solidly and i, I think they, that's what i said for the whole nation um that our schools are actually pretty good the issue is that they could be and should be better um, for victoria in particular one of the things that i found was fascinating um they the effectiveness of schools is best judged by how much progress their students make. 
A school can't be responsible for what its kids know on the first day they walk through the door in prep or in year seven, only for how far it takes them in that learning journey. Um, so I look at progress. Victoria actually does very well at supporting the progress of students from disadvantaged backgrounds those whose parents may not have finished high school or may be in a fairly basic job, the progress the Victorian students make is better than in other states. What we don't do so well at, and this was also surprising, is we don't do quite so well at stretching the students at the top end and also they're more often those whose parents themselves have been to university or are in a professional job. So we'd love to be doing better in both. And so I, I read from, from your report and, and the companion piece in the conversation that Victoria actually spent the least on its government schools in, in 2017. Is that correct? And if so, how do we account for the fact that we've done pretty well here if we're not spending as much on our government schools? Yeah, it's a great question. The first thing the, your listeners need to know is that um, the comparison of how much states are spending on their government schools has to be done by reference to a target for each school um, because you really can't compare a large metropolitan school in Melbourne with a small regional school in uh, the far north of uh, Queensland. It takes a lot more money to run a small remote school. So there is a formula out there. We don't need to worry about that. By comparison uh, to that formula, though, Victoria does spend less on its government schools. It has done for a very long time. The claim has been from the department that it's been much more efficient. I'm not sure that that's necessarily true. Um, Victoria does well in in terms of progress, does well in the earlier years, but doesn't excel anywhere else. Um, I suspect that uh, we should be focusing a little more on how do we deliver better outcomes and lifting the the learning for all the students um, before we uh, focus on trying to cut costs anymore. Mm. Yeah, and, I mean, New South Wales didn't do as well with with boosting up like students that are lower performing when they start at schools but did pretty well with extending the higher performance students and I wonder what it is is it ideological or what is it about the different states that has quite different outcomes for for depending on your, your family background and the like yeah that that was fascinating that there is this different what they call a social gradient uh, of depending on your social background how much of an impact that has um in some ways it seems to be a bit cultural that in new south wales they've uh, long had a focus on um how do you stretch the top they've had what are called opportunity classes in in primary schools they've got a lot more selective schools they're very highly competitive Um, Whereas in Victoria, we've had a long-time focus on how do we support every student. Um, Victoria was one of the earlier states to start putting more money into the most disadvantaged students. Um, So actually, maybe what it tells us is the the areas that you focus on are the areas that you deliver on. Well, maybe. And I suppose, you know, that brings us to to Gonski funding and how that's been delivered state by state seems to also have an impact on how schools perform. Yeah, and there are two parts to to that. I mean, it's a, it's become a bit of a truism. The more important than how much money is spent is how the money is spent. What's actually done with it? That's probably true in most people's lives, right? Including how you manage your family budget. Um, but there's two steps to that. Step one is that the money needs to be sent to the schools in accordance with their need, and that's what the first Gonski reform was all about. And the reality is we've actually made huge strides in this. It's a, some of it has flown beneath the radar. But if I tick them off, 
Both parties now agree with the idea of needs-based funding. Both say broadly agree on what the formula should be. Both parties in, in Canberra have agreed that the Commonwealth should be consistent across different states um, and so they're rebalancing that and there's a whole lot of details underneath it. Um, there's a couple of uh, small wrinkles. There's one that people might have heard of called the Choice and Affordability Fund, which kind of uh, is a bit of a backward step. But then at the state level, states are starting to respond. So, you know, it's just about conceivable that in two years' time, if you ask me about funding, I might just say, nothing to see here, and wouldn't that be wonderful? So, so the education wars may be almost behind us? Or <laughs> it's just about conceivable. Mm. It'll take another decade or so to get the transition happening, but if we're transitioning to a good end point, then that's tremendous. And that gets us on to the second piece, which is every school needs to use the money that it has as well as possible and that's far more complicated but, but um, in a sense going to have far more of an impact and there it's a combination I think we've talked about this before with adaptive education systems that the schools need to be able to identify what good practice is and they need appropriate support from the top it's neither being centrally directed nor every school making up its own adventure yeah, it's somewhere in the middle. Um, we're, we're speaking with um, Pete Goss from the Grattan Institute about education and also the work they've been doing measuring student progress across the country uh, and we're talking particularly about Victoria. But it is interesting to compare with different states. And why is it, do you think, that we don't uh, sort of look at Queensland and go, they're doing this great, let's have a look? Or I know in, in health, you know, we're leading and Grattan's had a look at that, that, you know, in Victoria we're leading when it comes to health outcomes and spending and efficiencies and all these sorts of things. But other states don't necessarily learn from that either. Is this, does it show that the sort of the, the federal system isn't working that that great or that state by state maybe we should be more federally oriented? What What do you read into it? Oh boy, there's a lot in that question. Um, so the idea, <laughs> that I think, the idea I think that you're talking about is something called competitive federalism, which is that if we have uh, six different states and two different territories that each have a lot of control, particularly over education and health, then they should each try their own thing. Some will do better than others, and then they should compete against each other effectively to raise the standards. They should look at the ones that are doing best. Um, Lovely theory. In school education, one of the challenges, it's really, really hard to do the types of comparisons to, say, who's actually being more effective, and then, Dylan, your question, who's being more efficient in terms of spending their money? So one is it's hard. Two is, uh, unless the federal government or an independent group like Grattan actually does the work, the states don't really have the incentive. It's much easier for them to say, oh, but, but, but Dylan, your situation's different, Carly, yours yeah. is different. And also yeah. fight it with, with state elections, which we've got around the corner. That's right, yeah, an election coming up later, uh, well, this month, in fact, and um, we haven't heard a lot of I haven't read a lot about kind of schools policy or, or issues. We've heard that the ALP has been building more schools, which we very much need in Victoria and is pledging to do more of. But I haven't heard what the opposition's policy is on, on this matter. Do you have a sense of that, Pete, and whether this will be a key issue when people vote in a few weeks' time? Yeah, so we'll, we'll split out two parts for the um, state election, one being the number of schools and then we'll maybe mm. get on to the teaching side. Um, there is huge population pressure in Victoria and in Melbourne in particular. So a couple of years ago I ran, crunched the numbers and I felt that there, there were going to be 190,000 extra students over a decade. And that's on top of... We've got about a million at the moment. So that's an extra 
massive growth. Um, for a few years, a few years ago, state government had fallen behind. I think we had a bit of a talk about that. Um, now everybody recognises they have to build. The Andrews Labor government um, put in a few weeks ago $400 million to go to non-government schools, both for new building and also for refurbishment. And then recently they said they're going to build 100 new schools over the next uh, eight years. And without going into the details, that's actually in line with how many that I, I think they need. So big tick on that side. Um, on the state, on the um, Matthew Guy Liberal Party, um, they still haven't announced all of their policies. I think, but they've also said they're going to put four hundred million dollars into non-government schools. They've said up to this stage that they're going to put four hundred million dollars into a state schools, which is not as much as Labor. Um, we'll wait and see. Both parties clearly recognise that there is a need to build new schools. Both parties are starting to say, let's put them where they're needed. Let, let's make this a planning exercise rather than a, a political ribbon cutting, which is good. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose it's it's worth... Um, I mean, there's been a few people writing about the opportunity that this offers to build modern schools, that a lot of our existing schools, you know, were built in a different era and they've been adapted to uh, for computers and all sorts of modern kind of teaching methods and the like. Do you think we're going to get really good... Um, architecture and and learning environments, Pete, or is this going to be a real hurry that we get these buildings? I think there's quite a bit of thought being put into the architecture and how that uh, how that affects the teaching. The biggest thing again is going to be how teachers use any new space. Um, in the inner city, the challenge is that land is really expensive, and so the answer there is to go upwards. And we've got a few vertical schools now. There's one in uh, Port Melbourne. There's one in Richmond. And the question is going to be how to learn what it takes to work a, to make a school work in that environment. In the outer suburbs, where there's many more new students going to go, we've got two challenges. With a primary school, how do you make sure that it's part of the local community? The state has been getting better at doing that. And, you know, I note the, the, the Labor government has said they'll put a kindergarten on every site. I don't know whether Liberal will match that. For secondary schools in the outer suburbs, the question is going to be how do they link into local industry? Do they actually provide pathways? So actually, I think rather than the physical building, the biggest question is can we get the secondary schools in outer growth suburbs right so that they not only give a good education but also set their, their young people up for the next stage? Yeah, and um, we're almost out of time, but I want to um, change uh, track just briefly before we end and talk about the transition out of school. And there's been some discussion about the effectiveness of ATAR with universities using some other barometers of, of whether a student is best suited to a particular course and so on, and whether that will continue to be the, the means by which we measure student aptitude and grant or deny access to a university place. Do you think ATAR is likely to stick around for the foreseeable future as the, the most effective way of doing that? I think that ATAR will stick around at least for the next five or so years. Um, it's pretty good at predicting um, whether students will actually graduate from university. So the higher your ATAR, the more likely you are to actually complete your course. The lower you are, the lower your ATAR, the less likely. Um, so it is predicting something important. It does have limitations. Um, I'd say watch this space. We don't have any replacement and the universities will want to have something to judge who they let in by. The reality is that we want peop young people who are good academically and also have a range of broader skills. Mm, particularly teachers. 
Indeed. Well, one of, my, one of my daughters is about to head to a, a sort of a new school and what I've been interested in is uh, speaking to some of the teachers at the school and they're really into being at the new school where it's, you know, growing culture and so forth. And I wonder, do you think there's a, a different skill set there for teaching staff that we're going to need in all of these schools because they're starting from scratch, aren't they? They're building from scratch and that that is quite a different way of teaching than going into existing schools, which is what most teachers would have, you know, been used to. I think that's right. I think the, for the teachers, what they'll need is an open mind and a willingness to learn and build a culture from scratch. What will be really important there is the principal and the other, the rest of the leadership team and how they set up the, the new culture of the school. Um, because it, it's easy at the extremes to say we want schools that are all about teaching and we want good, strong academics or some schools would say it's all about student well-being, um, that we want students to feel happy, and if they feel happy, then they'll learn. Reality is, school is for learning. If it's working well, if students are learning, that means that you need to have a good, safe culture where every student feels welcome, where they have an adult who knows them and understands them a bit, and then then they can then they're in a best position to actually stretch themselves academically in a broad, rich, and deep way. Um, that again it's that balance yeah and it's interesting because schools trade so much on reputation but if you knew you don't have one do you so it's an interesting area <laughs> it's an Thank opportunity for it them. is an opportunity <laughs> of optimist um pete goss he's a schools education program director over at the grattan institute and if you want to have a look at the reports he's put, being put, um, putting out they're very easy to find on their website if you want to learn more thanks so much it's always good to have you thank you this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.